Hello, and welcome to a specially extended episode of Battleground the Falklands. It's Patrick Bishop here, and today Saul, David and I will be discussing the first stage of the grand finale of the campaign, that is the very intense battles for the summits of the mountains. Big hills they are really, that guard the approach to Port Stanley. And their capture, or otherwise, is going to finally decide the outcome of the war. In telling this story, we've got some great witness interviews, but also some rare actuality of a brilliant eve of landing speech by the CO of 4-2 Commando, and a recording of the actual fighting when the shot and shell were flying. So where are we? We're now three weeks into the land campaign, and the weather is steadily worsening as the savage Falklands winter sets in. Every hour counts now. If stalemate, which would have dreadful political and diplomatic consequences for Margaret Thatcher and her government, is to be avoided. Last time we told the story of the tragedy at Fitzroy Bluff Cove when the Sir Galahad was attacked by Argentinian aircraft. That was on the 8th of June. And that resulted in 56 dead and many more wounded. Most of the casualties were from the Welsh Guards who were moving forward to join up with the rest of five brigade who you will remember had controversially been thrust along the southern side of the island to take part in the final attack. This, at first sight, seems like a huge setback. Any faltering, any delay might cripple the vital momentum that land force commanders had decided was essential to win the war. But that didn't happen. No, the decision had been taken that there was absolutely nothing to be gained by pausing to lick wounds. They had to crack on, and that is what they did. At the same time as the Galahad was hit, General Jeremy Moore, the overall land force commander, was finalising his plan for the attack on Port Stanley. He was taking the advice of his deputy brigadier John Waters and the commander of 3 Commando Brigade, Julian Thompson, whose men had led the push forward. But they had different viewpoints. Now, before getting into that, we'd better say something about the geography here. Basically, Stanley's overlooked by a semicircle of so-called mountains, all of them less than a 1,000 feet high, but nonetheless, they're very steep, very rocky, very difficult ground. In the north and closest to Stanley is Mount Longdon, which is the lowest, but nonetheless, it looks like a fortress with great slabs of stone rearing up like the turrets of a castle when you're standing underneath it. Uh, Next to the southwest is Two Sisters. Then at the bottom of the semicircle comes Mount Harriet. There are some more heights before you get to Stanley, notably Mount Tumbledown, which we'll be hearing a lot about later. So Brigadier Waters proposed concentrating one big effort on the southern flank, i.e. towards Harriet and Tumbledown, which would bypass Two Sisters and Longdon. Thompson, however, wanted an attack on a wide front in order to keep several corridors open to move fresh troops forward and ferry casualties back. In the end, he got his way. Now, the Thompson approach is slightly unorthodox, given that concentration of force is one of the principles of fighting a battle. So, Patrick, do you think that was the right decision? Well, one thing it was was simple, and that's always a virtue, especially in warfare. Each of the objectives is being attacked by a single unit. They don't have to act in concert with another outfit, which always complicates things. You know, it's a pretty straightforward idea. You have the first lot going in for the first attack... They take their objectives. Then the second, other units, reserve units, two para in reserve here, move forward to exploit forward. And so on it goes until the enemy cracks. Okay, they've been on the mountains. They're 
kind of physical conditions getting eroded uh, with this dreadful weather. But on the other hand, there are positives about that. They've been there a while now. They've been out patrolling, aggressively patrolling, getting the lie of the land. So that gives them a good idea of the terrain and possible approaches, although it doesn't really give them an idea of enemy numbers. One thing we hear quite a lot is, is sort of misunderstandings about how many people they're actually facing on the other side. It's interesting, Patrick, isn't it? Uh, given the experience at Goose Green, that you might have thought the opposite would be true in the sense that they hugely underestimated the defenders at Goose Green Darwin. Uh, and therefore, why aren't they assuming that actually there are more troops in the hills than they really did think? Uh, and that, of course, was the case. They hugely underestimated, as you say, once again. Yeah. Another missing element here is, I mean, you've got the SAS uh, on the ground and the SBS on the ground. But, I mean, there's a very limited amount of the picture that they can see. What you really need is aerial reconnaissance photographs. Now, you know, back in the Second World War, from a very early stage, you've got every operation that's carried out is preceded by an intense overflight program where they get really good pictures of, of what's on the ground. I mean, Dieppe, that there were kind of endless hundreds and hundreds of uh, aerial recon missions called to the extent that the RAF got fed up with it and said, uh, please, can we, can we can you sort of stop loading all this work on us? You can read all about this. I better get a plug in here. Uh, in my new book, Operation Jubilee, about the Dieppe raid, uh, which is coming out in paperback in a couple of weeks' time. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Patrick. In the Second World War, um, which we've both written about extensively, you see that no stone is left unturned, particularly by 1943, 1944, when, the, of course, the Allies have got you know, virtually unlimited resources to get all the information they need about every operation. Now, that doesn't stop bulls up still being made, of course, Arnhem springs to mind, but it does show you that there was a kind of sense of to reduce the risk of war, and of course it's always a risk, um, get as much information as you can. And I think part of the problem here is that they never, as we discussed at the beginning of the podcast, establish air superiority over the Falklands. Yeah, but nonetheless, there's another principle of war which they do very much adhere to, which is get as much kit forward, as much artillery support as you can, as much ammunition as uh, it's possible to lift into position. So you can really precede the attacks with a serious bombardment. We'll hear a lot about this. It, it really was pretty impressive. I was there. Uh, this combination of naval gunfire support, you've got the frigates and the destroyers able to come in quite close at night. In the day, it's far too risky because there are these land-based exocets still a threat. And so between the two of them, the 105 batteries, I think the Royal Artillery don't really get enough credit for what they did there, and the gunfire support, they can actually put up a pretty impressive bombardment in support of the ground attack. Yeah, and I think we should we should have a quick shout out here for some of the unheralded heroes of the campaign. We haven't heard from one of them yet. We might do before the end. And that's the men of 146 Commando Battery who were basically calling in the support from ships off to sea. It's something that had been done very effectively uh, in the Second World War, particularly by the um, Americans, interesting enough, in the Pacific. But this was, uh, you know, it's a, it's a very tough job because if you think about it, the naval ships are firing from relatively long distances and you've got to get things right and they don't always go right. But let's also have a quick thought about Argentinian morale. I mean, they also got a sense at Goose Green, the first major battle, that not all the Argentinian defenders were going to hold strong for any great length of time. So do you think, Patrick, did you get any sense when you were there at the time that there was this belief that they would crack sooner rather than later? What was said, as we'll hear from Nick Vaux, I mean, I think this wasn't just a attempt to boost morale, raise spirits by 
putting out hopeful rather than truthful information. I think that, that what they were getting was that, that the Argentinian conscripts, as a constant mention of conscripts, uh, just on that point, uh, the conscripts were... None of them were, was less than 18 years old. Under Argentinian law, you couldn't go off to war unless you were 18. Unlike in Britain, so some of the guys uh, on our side were 17 years old. Uh, some of them indeed started the campaign at the age of 16. Anyway, there was quite a good amount of evidence to suggest that morale was not great. We'd taken a few prisoners. I saw a few of them myself. They didn't look very cheerful. Uh, we got the impression that they were relations with the officers were pretty poor. There was clearly a yawning gap between the uh, officers and their men in the conscript units. Of course, they also had some special forces units, Marines, who were much better trained and whose morale was a lot sounder. Their kind of basic posture is passive. They've had all this time to prepare positions. They've got great kits. You know, when we overran those positions, we found these you know, loads of night vision goggles. In one case, you know, 0.5 machine guns, very, very a useful weapon if you're, if you're trying to defend a, a position such as theirs, still in their cases, still packed in, in Greece. And also great boots, that's a very important thing. They had these nice kind of like Doc Martin-style airwear boots. But despite all these advantages, they, they haven't done anything aggressive. They haven't tried to preempt the attackers at, at any point. What we deduce from that is that this was actually, rather than inaction, it was the strategy. The idea was to just sit tight uh, wait for the weather and all the difficulties of a very, very long-distance campaign to start kicking in, and then hopefully the British will start uh, to realise the position's hopeless and seek a diplomatic solution which would be favourable to Argentina. Yeah, it's very optimistic, isn't it? I mean, one of the great theories of war is, by Clausewitz, the great Prussian military theorist, is it's better to do something than nothing. And, of course, what Menendez is effectively doing is nothing. He's hoping the British and the elements and possibly a diplomatic intervention will solve the problem for him. But that inaction, of course, uh, rarely ends well, as we're going to discover. So let's go on to the battles. They are, of course, to be fought at night. Uh, surprise, of course, but daylight attacks, as we know with the Argentinian firepower, would be suicidal. They hold the high ground and there's virtually no cover in the approaches up to those features. All units began moving towards their start lines as dusk fell on the 11th of June. It was cold, as always, and the dark was flecked with flurries of snow. The boys had just endured 10 days on and around Mount Kent and Mount Challenger next to it in conditions that would put most people into hospital with exposure. But nevertheless, they were cheerful and determined. Nick Vaux's plan for 42 Commando's assault on Mount Harriet was to start with a noisy, diversionary pseudo-operation by J Company from Wall Mountain to the west, which is where the Argentine defenders were expecting the attack to come from. Meanwhile, K and L companies would have worked their way round in as much silence as possible to the southern side of the mountain. Then, under cover of a huge bombardment, launched from Royal Navy ships lying offshore, they would creep up the mountain. We get a flavour of the mood from this great recording, which was made by Kim Sabido of IRN. He was uh, the bravest of the 30-odd correspondents in the field for my and most people's money. Like me, he was with 4-2 Commando. And morale was good in no small part due to the outstanding leadership of their CEO, Nick Fawkes. Before we went ashore, he gave a stirring address, which set the tone for the rest of the campaign. And we can hear some of it here. 
I want to share one or two thoughts with you. And I'd like to begin with, from my own point of view, the most sincere thing that I want to say, which is that to each and every individual here in this room, I wish you the very best of luck in what is to come. Now, one thing you can be quite sure of is that your training, your equipment, the leadership throughout this unit, and most important of all, your own morale is going to give you the best possible chance to come through what lies ahead successfully. For a moment, however, I want to say two things concerning casualties believe we all must face. The first is that unlike Northern Ireland, where normally casualties take precedence over operations, for obvious reasons that cannot be so while we recapture the Falkland Islands. For obvious reasons, because if you're on an operation, casualties occur and you stop, either individually or collectively on the operation, to look after the casualties, you could lose the operation and we would have more casualties as a result. So we have got to press on and complete the job before giving the highest possible priority to casualties afterwards. Now, that doesn't mean that anybody is going to be left behind. The British services never leave their casualties behind, and the Royal Marines particularly so. Nobody will be left behind. On the contrary, as soon as the task is complete, the very highest priority will be given to treatment, Kazakh, and getting you to the most excellent facilities which we've all seen being set up on the ships. I want to say one more thing about casualties, and it's a personal plea to each one of you here. From now on, you're going to be loaded down with lethal, dangerous bits of kit with which you are meant to kill the enemy. Now, do not, through carelessness or overexcitement, kill one of us. Nothing could be a greater waste than that somebody sitting here now loses life or limb because of one of his oppo's carelessness. So be careful at all times with weapon safety. Now I want to turn to a more cheerful topic and say a few words about the enemy. <laughs> the enemy, as you've been told, outnumbers us, has a lot of modern, effective equipment, and should have been spending the last six weeks or so constructing an impregnable defence. The facts are very different, as again, many of you have heard. Most of the enemy are poorly trained, confused conscripts, who increasingly appear to be suffering, not only from shortages of food, clothing, and indeed the right frame of mind to live in the sort of cold, wet conditions that we're familiar with and they are not. But recent intelligence reports indicate that they are listless, they are apathetic. In some cases, they're even refusing to carry out the basic duties. If they do crack, let the buggers surrender. If you don't let them surrender, <laughs> if you don't let them surrender, 
they'll pretty soon realize that there's no point in it, and then resistance will stiffen, and we, of course, will probably take further casualties. So if you see people with their hands up or showing the white flag and so on, let them come forward. And when they are prisoners, and I need hardly remind anyone of this, let us remember the very high tradition we, the British, have always had about treating prisoners of war. We don't brutalize our prisoners of war, and we're not going to start now. Finally, I'd like to tell you of one or two convictions that I personally have. And the first one is that what we are doing is right. Now, I'm not going to talk about the political rights and wrongs of the Falkland Islands. I believe each one of us is entitled to work that out for himself, and I know that most of you have. What I'm talking about is one country seizing another country's property. And if Argentina gets away with it, it'll be open season for every country that reckons it can take away somebody else's land or their freedom or both. And the world really will find itself in total chaos. And it so happens that, by coincidence, it's Britain that has to put the score right. And that's what we're doing. And I know in my heart of hearts that if we don't do it, it will get us nowhere. It will just get us into another situation, probably much more serious in some other part of the world. The second conviction I have is that we will succeed because of the reasons I've just said. And because in the last six weeks, all of us have watched, at very short notice, one of the most powerful, one of the most modern, and as it's developed, one of the most effective task forces the world has ever seen, which is now less than 100 miles away from the Falkland Islands. And already in that period of time, in the air, at sea, and on the land, Notably, our own company, M Company in South Georgia, in all those spheres, we've had significant successes against the enemy. And that's why I believe quite clearly that this is going to be a success. The last thing is that I want to tell you that I believe it's all going to be a success because as I stand here, I count myself exceedingly personally fortunate because I don't believe that any commanding officer could ask for a harder, more experienced, better tried, and in particular, better motivated team than I'm commanding in 4-2 Commander. In fact, the other day when I watched the video of your Malvina song, <laughs> I actually felt a fleeting moment of sympathy for those miserable spicks over there. <laughs> Well, that was Nick Vaux, commander of 42 Commando, giving the address before the troops landed, as Patrick pointed out, about what they were going to do when they get into their first big battle. And, and one of the striking things about his words are the determination. It sounds ruthless to a modern audience, but the determination for the soldiers to keep going. You very much get a sense in these types of battles in which the attackers had a lot of disadvantages, as we've already pointed out, that you must keep going. Momentum is everything. And if that means leaving someone, a mate, who's badly wounded, then that's what they're prepared to do. Yeah. Uh, well, this was all brought back to me very forcefully uh, the other day when I was at a uh, memorial dinner for the battle commemorating the, the victory um, down at Stonehouse Barracks in Plymouth when Nick spoke again, as did uh, Julian Thompson, the brigade commando, 
And it was terrific stuff. It was a great, great evening, brilliantly organised by Colour Sergeant Gary Chapman, who's a, a fan of the podcast, I'm pleased to say. There were some 4-2 legends there. Mike Norman, who commanded the Royal Marine Detachment in Stanley when the Argentinians invaded and fought gallantly until he was ordered to stop by the, by the governor. But he returned to the Falklands as CEO of the newly created J Company, and fought in the Harriet battle. He's got a book out, actually, called There and Back, highly recommended. There were other great names there, Ken McMillan, Lima Company Troop Commander, Rod Boswell, etc., etc. And the following day, there was a gathering at Bickley at the 4-2 Commando HQ at Bickley on the edge of, of Dartmoor, where there were lots of other old comrades and veterans. Among them, our old friend Mark Hankin, and he tells us now what he got up to on Mount Herion. So once it got dark, we set off in single file. Um, I can just remember the naval gunfire and artillery um, support, the, the covering fire, if you like, as we were moving. It was landing on the top of the mountain, and it was just an incredible sight and sound. They were absolutely getting pulverised. And I can remember walking along, and you can see the mountain, basically the mountainside exploding all the time. And I was just thinking, God, no one's going to be able to survive that. And I can remember thinking, it's going to be a bit of a doddle, this. Once we start advancing up the mountain, there's going to be no one left on there. Anyway, so we get to the start line. Basically, we turn left, facing up the mountain with a sea behind us. And uh, we're all lined out on the start line, so adrenaline's pumping. We're all really anxious, you know. This is the first time any of us have ever done anything on this sort of scale before. I guess the start line was somewhere between, I don't know, 800, 900 metres um, to the top of Mount Harriet. So we all lined out, the order came through to advance, and it seemed like we'd only took two or three steps, and the enemy spotted us and opened up with their heavy machine guns, and there's 50 cal tracer flying down the mountain, small arms coming down the mountain. I'm sure artillery started arriving pretty quick. And uh, I can just remember, that we're literally in no cover. I remember diving on the floor, my face was pressed into the dirt, I could feel soil in my mouth. It was absolutely terrifying. That was Mark Hankin. Now, we just want to break in here with a bit of extraordinary actuality. It was recorded by Kim Sabido, the radio reporter from IRN, who actually accompanied Lima Company up the hill. This is the cacophony going on all around him. <laughs> around us and the NCOs did a good job they started to get us going but I do remember after the first initial contact our company commander Captain David Wayne shouting this is not effective enemy fire come on get up and get moving but at the same time I could hear someone screaming for a medic so it was pretty sure we've already took casualties but here we were getting told to get up and we did you know the officers and the NCOs did a great job motivating us and we we got up and we started moving forward under this machine gun fire and basically for the next few hours it was pepper pot and doing our drills fire and movement grenades and rocket launchers you know guys had 66 and 84 millimeter shoulder fired anti-tank rockets we were using as bunker busters against the RG positions mortar fire 
Heavy weapons troop were using Milan wire-guided anti-tank missiles again to take out some of the heavy machine gun posts. And just the noise was incredible. Every now and again a paralloom mortar around would go up and these bright lights would float down under parachutes, casting sort of light and shadows over the mountain. It, it was just a really sort of surreal experience. And it was slow going at times. Every now and again we'd end up pinned down, heavy machine gun fire, the rounds just ripping past us and you know, you could the ground was getting tore up. It wasn't just a case of Oh, we're stuck, fixed bayonets, let's just charge at them. The young officers in the NCOs, I think, looking back, they did a great job. They worked it out, whatever the problem was, they worked a way around it, and now we were going to overcome that problem. You know, they did a great job. Great stuff. I was uh, at the foot of the mountain watching all this going on. There was an amazing firework display. One thing that uh, I think you don't expect are these extraordinary light effects caused by paraloom shells which are fired up into the air and then they parachute down i don't know what the the thing that is that generates the light maybe magnesium or something like that it's a very very strange eerie white light which gives the whole thing a kind of strange theatrical element a kind of air of unreality yeah those star shells are incredibly bright i remember reading once that they have the power of sort of you know twenty thousand light bulbs you know so they clearly did their job there but listening again to mark hankin you know you have to remind yourself this guy's just 17 at the time it's his first proper time in action and what you realize listening to his account is how important training is he keeps referring back to you know we did what we've been trained to do fire and movement keep moving but he also gives due credit to the officers in elite units you often get a sense that it's actually the ncos who are who are driving things forward they're the key to everything both special forces and also elite units like the paras and the marines but mark is giving due credit to his officers patrick and do you think that's right yeah well this is very much a uh, a junior commander's battle and i think this is what all the ceos would say and julian thompson has said many times is that you know once the thing starts they're out of it if you're a battalion commander or the brigade commander you know your job is done and you have to stand back and let the junior officers and senior ncos right at a corporal level making the, you know decisions that are going to win or lose the battle and most of the decisions they took were good ones as we hear there's quite a lot of a lot of thought goes into this which again is slightly surprising if you're a civilian if you're crouched behind a rock with a bullets whizzing past you and mortars exploding next to you you think there's probably not the best environment to be making cool and calculated decisions but one thing that i think you do find when you are in battle is a remarkable clarity of mind you either freak out or you suddenly become icy calm and clear because your survival depends on the next decision you're going to make and i think that's clearly what happened here bolstered by all the great drilling and training they've done okay patrick you were there this is your first battle uh, you're a youngish journalist i mean you don't need to put your life on the line this is something you've done voluntarily this is not a, a professional career for you in terms of actual fighting so what were your feelings as you went up that hill presumably not too close behind the front line uh yeah well the trouble with the falklands was you couldn't get out of the front line because um in some cases, I mean, no matter how cautious one was, there was always sort of danger. I mean, there was sort of shelling going on quite a lot at this point. And, of course, there's the air threat. I mean, I remember going to a – this was a little bit later on, but being up with Julian Thompson at his forward brigade headquarters. It had moved up pretty much to Mount Kent. And we were just sort of hanging around outside the tent where the briefing was taking place, where Thompson was uh, giving his final orders for the final bit of the battle, actually. Suddenly, without any warning whatsoever, 
over the hill come, uh, I think it was four A4 Skyhawks flying very, very low and immediately stopped dropping bombs and machine gunning whatever they could see on the ground. By this stage, people were building little stone sangers, as they're called. That's like little defensive positions out of the rocks. And I dived into one of these, which was handily nearby, and immediately was buried under an avalanche of senior officers. Uh, Julius Thompson himself and Jeremy Warrior dived in on top of me. So, you know, you couldn't, no matter how timid you were, you couldn't really get away from it. So the best thing to do was just accept it and crack on. Okay, in part two, we're going to describe the other two big battles that night when 4-5 Commando move on to Sisters Mountain and the Paras storm Mount Longdon in what turns out to be the most hard-fought battle of the war. Welcome back. Well, 4-2's battle was a brilliant success with minimal casualties. Marines lost only two dead, which was far less than expected. Meanwhile, 4-5 Commando, under Lieutenant Colonel Andrew Whitehead, were launching their operation to capture two sisters just to the north of Mount Harriet. Now, it took them quite a while to reach the start line, moving over the very difficult terrain in darkness. And as the name suggests, the feature has two peaks. X Company were tasked with the southern peak, but were soon pinned down by accurate machine gun and mortar fire. The Argentinians were making good use of their night vision goggles. But eventually they managed to take out the positions, giving the most trouble with two 60mm rockets, and together with Y and Z companies, clawed their way to the summit and victory. The Z Company platoon commander, Lieutenant Clive Deiter, won the military cross in this action by rallying his eight troop and leading it forward at Bayonet Point to take their position, codenamed Summer Days. He later recalled, I began listening to our rate of fire and I realised we were going to run out of ammunition. Then I remembered a line in a book about the Black Watch in the Second World War. They were pinned down and the adjutant stood up and shouted, Is this the Black Watch? Charge! What I didn't remember until I read it again later was that he was actually cut in half at that point by a German machine gun. The next thing I knew, I was up and running on my own, shouting Zulu, 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 which was our company battle cry, and also the battle cry of my father's old regiment, the South Wales Borderers. We also just mention here uh, something else that was going on out at sea, uh, which was much remarked upon and noticed, even in the middle of the battle. This was the role of HMS Glamorgan, which played a big part of the success of the operation. Her twin 4.5-inch guns were showering shell onto the Argentinian positions, greatly demoralising the defenders. But then Glamorgan herself was attacked. I mentioned earlier that the Argentinians still had some land-based exocets, and one was mounted on uh, an improvised launcher near Port Stanley. Early the following morning, that's the 11th now, 11th of June, Glamorgan was steaming about 20 miles off the shore when she was hit and 16 of her crew were killed. They were buried at sea. This is something that happened throughout the campaign, this rather moving ceremony before the dead are dispatched to the deep. So despite the loss of life and the damage, she was still seaworthy for Morgan and was taken out to sea where there was a repair ship, the Stena Sea Spread, another little-known element of the story, which carried out, you know, these sort of South Atlantic seas was 
amazingly able to actually patch Glamorgan up and put her back into action. The same goes for the helicopters. The repair teams were working out in the open, all weathers, and they managed to keep a flying rate of like 90% of the helicopter fleet operational yeah great stuff patrick and it's you know unheralded heroes uh, you get right across the armed forces and the uh, sort of support auxiliary people who are helping out down in the campaign so let's move on to the longest and bloodiest battle and that is three paras epic struggle to take mount longdon the intelligence they had suggested it was only held by a company albeit well dug in and armed but only a hundred or so men in fact As it turned out later, there was a battalion defending Longdon, i.e. nearer a thousand men, and they had lots of support. Let's hear from CO Hugh Pike about the problems that 3Para faced. We'd done all this reconnaissance, yes, but um, I think we found that we were confronted with a lot more heavy weaponry on that position than we'd anticipated. I'm talking about things like recoilless rifles, heavy machine guns, that sort of thing. And also some very skillful sniping by well-trained small groups, individuals, in amongst a great mass of peasant soldiery, really, ill-trained conscripts. So there was, that, there was the heavy weaponry, but there was also very good use of artillery and heavy mortars from positions around Port Stanley itself, which was very accurately observed and caused us a great deal of trouble, both during and, and after the battle. What are your main memories of the battle itself? You know, it's interesting, some of the comments about H. Jones, about where he was on the battlefield. But frankly, a close-in fight like this does require the battalion commander to be reasonably close to the action, doesn't it? Absolutely, yes, yes. But, of course, this is a night battle, whereas two para were fighting in daylight, mostly. In a night battle, in a sense, once the plan is made and you're up, having a sense of what's going on and having a sense of when to use reserves and move a particular unit or subunit on the battlefield. It's really down to the small group, the four-man squad, the eight-man section, and the platoon level as well. That is where the battle is won and lost, just by the the skill and uh, teamwork and um, determination and, and sheer courage of these wonderful soldiers. That's the thing I remember most about this awful battle. And it was an awful battle went on all night there were moments when you thought hang on you know how much more we have to do to to actually break the will of these people Uh, one particular awful moment i do remember very vividly was just behind me there was a terrible explosion and um i only later realized caused the death of three members of the same milan team and milan anti-tank team who uh tried to get into a better position and they were take, three of them were taken out by one round from a 105mm recorder's rifle, which killed a corporal and two private soldiers. And initially, one thought, hang on, that must be a, a mortar or a, an artillery shell, but it wasn't. It was a targeted um, recorder's rifle run. But there were a lot of, there were a lot of um, similar horrible incidents, and we, we lost 17 men in that night battle, and then another six from indirect fire in the sort of 48 hours that, that, that followed after. You, of course, were getting supporting fire yourself. I think I read somewhere that it got very close, but, you know, fortunately, there were no casualties from blue on blue. I mean, that's always a great danger, but I'm pretty sure in my own mind that there were none. But there could easily have been, because it was hard to know when the stuff was coming in, whether it was ours or theirs. So we had artillery fire. We had fire from um, HMS Avenger at sea for the first few hours, anyway. And then they had to withdraw because of the exocet threat as daylight came up. But then, unfortunately, 
Mount Longdon, if you look at the map, it's directly opposite across the Moody Valley to the south is Mount Tumbledown. And of course, for the 48 hours after the battle, the Argentine observers were still on Mount Tumbledown, directing the fire from batteries around Port Stanley directly onto the mountain, which they could do very, very accurately. And similarly with the heavy mortars. Well, that was Hugh Pike there describing the dimensions of the battle. It was a very long and very hard, and even when they'd taken the position, it wasn't over because they're still getting shelled and were shelled throughout the rest of the following day, taking casualties the whole time. It says a lot for the morale and the guts of three power that they stuck it out. You've got to also remember that everyone's absolutely exhausted. There can be few harder things to do physically than fight a battle, especially one uphill and in dreadful weather. So it must have been the elation of having taken the position must have been quickly, I think, supplanted by a sense of apprehension about what happens next. There's still a couple of hills to go, aren't there, Saul, before you get to Stanley? Yeah, there are. And one of them has gone down in history as an infamous struggle. And that, of course, is Mount Tumbledown. And next week, we're going to hear a little bit about that battle and how it was finally taken. And this, of course, is where Five Brigade, and we've spoken a lot about Five Brigade, uh, were they actually needed? Was it a mistake to send them on this southern leap around the bottom of the island? But they might now finally actually have a role to play. We're obviously getting very close to the end of the Falklands series. And we've been getting, Patrick, haven't we, quite a lot of really interesting feedback, most of it complimentary, I I might add. Um, But we haven't been discussing any of it on the show. And I think that's something we need to do in future. So if anyone has any burning questions, any kind of responses to what we've been talking about, anything to add, then can you please, please, please either come to me on social media, that's SaulDavid66 on Twitter, or email us. Uh, my email address is saul.david at gmail.com. And Patrick's is patrickbishop2001 at hotmail.com. So join us next week when we'll talk about the last big showdown when the Scots Guards go into action and two para fight their second battle of the war.